Hello and welcome to the Social Work Sessions with myself, Carolyn Smith, Principal Social Worker for Adults from Somerset Council. Social Work Sessions is a podcast that makes space for conversations about social work with adults. A podcast to support your learning, reflection and exploration of contemporary issues in practice. So welcome to another episode of the Social Work Sessions. I'm really delighted today that I've got Tim Fisher with me and we're going to be having a really, what I hope is going to be very interesting, I'm sure it will be, having spoken to Tim quite a number of times before, we're going to have a conversation about relational activism and co-design. So welcome Tim, it's really good to see you. Oh, it's really nice to be here and I'm a fan of the show so it's a thrill for me to uh, to come on and have a conversation with you. Oh, that's that's great to hear that you've been uh, listening to uh, previous episodes. I have indeed, yes. Yeah, very <laughs> professional, as I was saying, yeah. Tim, I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself because I know you'll do it far better than I will. So, Tim, could you just say a little bit about who you are, what you do, what your role is? And then I'm going to ask you to tell us a little bit about your your journey so far to get to where where you are now. So over to you, Tim. Yeah. Well, um, I'm a social worker. I'm a service manager in Camden. I work across children and adults. And we just put together a new participation unit. Um, So we've got um, family group conferencing, uh, peer-led advocacy and participation officers. And we're making a new home for ourselves in the council and trying to ramp up the impact of all of that um, co-production participation work. So it's an exciting time actually to be in Camden. Um, we've also got a collective we call Relational Activism, which I know we're going to talk about a bit more as we go through um, with the conversation. Um, and that's a, a group of people, um, a mix of lived and learned experience, um, individuals that are interested in in talking about and taking action to uh, make a difference in the system. Yeah, so that's a really nice uh, crew to be part of. And, you know, that's a group of people that are, um, expanding all the time. So, um, you know, I'd count yourself as a relation activist, um, you know, in amongst that as well. <laughs> I know we've collaborated um, with each other, haven't we, with with some success. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And I'm going to ask you in a, in a few minutes to, uh, to really let our listeners know what relational activism is, what do we mean by that? But can I ask you, first of all, Tim, what was it that brought you to social work? All those years ago. Yeah, well, originally I, I left school and I was an estate agent at first and I left school with wow. any, yeah. Um, I didn't have um, many qualifications and I was undiagnosed then. I was dyslexic at school. And so in my hometown in Kent, I sort of fell into um, this job of showing people around houses. And I did that for five years, believe it or not. I think seven years old, because I did it part-time um, when I moved on from that uh, full-time job. But yeah, so I did that for quite a long stretch. And it's funny, because I'd be visiting people in their houses and sitting on their sofa and talking to them. And I, I was sort of, I mean, not in a nosy way, this might sound nosy, but I was like, wanted some deeper conversations really than what, what I was having. and. They just wanted to know how much their house was worth and they wanted me to get the measuring tape out. And I was sort of, uh, yeah, just looking for something more, I think. And one day I went to value somebody's house and 
she, as it transpired, was an academic professor, actually. And we started a, a conversation and um, actually we did get to some deeper chats. And that day, and I'd gone out, I'd just supposed to go out for an hour to measure up our house. And uh, I, mean, I ended up um, uh, spending a good few hours there. We felt like it was nearly the whole, uh, nearly the whole day. And she was saying to me, you know, what you're obviously uh, in You've got um, some other interests. You know, what are you going to do? What's your path forward in life? And uh, she got all deep and meaningful with me, and really encouraged me um, to do some learning and to. Um, uh, yeah, and to try something else out. So it was off the back of that. Then I went and I, as a mature student, and I was 22, so I wasn't, I wasn't that mature. <laughs> but I got into this like, access course thing that then takes you on to university. And then I did politics at university in Sussex and then started getting involved in quite a bit of activism and community organising around um, environment and climate change. Uh, which was good. That was really great. You know, good grounding in the kinds of things that I'm doing now, actually, because we did loads of things. We hold community meetings, show films, hold conversations, and just put up posters in the community where I was at that time in Cardiff. And, uh, and it was a good grounding in sort of pitching and being able to you know, hold a space and facilitate a conversation. And uh, from there, I got interested, um, less interested in Westminster politics and more interested in community politics and decided to become a social worker. And I, I didn't really know what that was at first, to be honest. And one of the professors on my course, I remember, in Cardiff had written a book called The Invisible Trade. And uh, it, it still feels like a bit, of a occupation that isn't always totally understood and when it's a complex business isn't it you know this more than most um it's a complex thing uh, social work but i was really glad that i landed there and uh, i felt you know when you start to do something you you join a group of people or you take up a profession and it's a place where you feel you belong and oh yes, I yeah, I do. I do. Instinctively, once I learn more about it, yeah. yeah, it's really interesting that you say that, Tim, because um, I I remember, a, I like yourself, I was a mature student when I came to social work, and oh, yeah. um, I can remember a job that I did um, before going to do my social work training, and it felt like I'd come home. You know, it was just yeah, this is I can be totally me. I haven't got to put on that sort of social front to fit in to this work environment. So, yeah, it was a bit of a feel like I'm coming home sort of moment. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a nice, it is a nice wedding, isn't it? And also, and it's an inclusive place, I think, and there's many different paths and opportunities and, and, and learning pathways as well in social work, isn't there? And I really, I really feel like, yeah, I cottoned onto that and quite early and really got interested in where were the areas of social work where I could bring some of that activism and that experience that I had and that interest that I had in community organising. And so, yeah, cottoned onto that and quite early and got interested in um, family conferencing 
And uh, yeah, and that, that was a, that was really great for me to find out about that and sort of take that forward. And re- I've been involved with that. Joe, Tim, I'm just wondering about the wondering because there was something that you mentioned. We were talking about communities, and you mentioned about holding a space, learning to hold a space, and. I wonder if you could explain what you mean by that, because it's a really crucial idea and skill, isn't it, for working working with groups? Yeah, I think it starts with the values uh, around the people are entitled to um, to that space, entitled to make decisions about their lives, and uh, and my. The personal experience, actually, the process of doing it, because I think the more that you're involved in group decision making, um, the more you catch the feeling of that, and how it's not just you know we talk about empowering a lot, you know how it's empowering for people who are working with, or the and the immediate community or or family or friendship group around them, but it's also really um, you know you catch the feeling of it as a professional, and it's a really um, exciting way to work as well and to try to bring people together and to hold space to make decisions. And Adrian Marie Brown, the American community organiser, uh, talks about brave spaces rather than safe spaces. And uh, I wouldn't totally throw the, the term safe space out the window. It's probably quite a good one uh, sometimes. But I get what she's saying about needing to have a, a brave space. And each individual within that collective and um, brave in terms of bringing something to the table uh, themselves. And to facilitate that, yeah, you really need to be um, flexible uh, to show some vulnerability to do that thing where you, where, which is sometimes called use of self, where you try and be as authentic as possible in yourself as a facilitator um, and trying to get, try and get those conversations going. And uh, it, it, it's not always easy, actually. I remember... When I first joined Camden, I decided to start up these coffee mornings to hear from parents that experienced child protection conferences. And I did it, I think, because I'd come from other roles where I was more directly doing the practice, connecting people directly day to day. And in the role in Camden, I was project managing and managing the community facilitators that were doing the day-to-day work. And I thought, oh, I really want to stay connected to people. So I really felt like I wanted to not lose that skill that I thought I'd, and probably the main skill that I'd learned over a period of time, which was facilitating. And so I started these coffee mornings. And it was, talk about brave space. I was nervous at first, you know. I mean, it was, it was up there. It was in Camden. But, you know, the sort of trendy bit of Camden, the... And the lock and the roundhouse and that end of it, it, it was sort of up the road from there. It was in uh, a dusty old uh, Salvation Army, um, Salvation Army Centre, and uh, and it was it was fantastic. You know, there were ten parents came to the first to the very first coffee morning, um, and uh, yeah, and that's what it's about for me is is people and. And, and seeing that mix and being part of that dynamic where people come together and talk. Yeah, it was great. That comes across so strongly, Tim, every time that that I've spoken with you or heard you talk. You know, it is about the people um, that share decision-making, um, coming together, connection. Yeah. 
I wonder if from here we we talk a little bit about relational activism because that that seems to follow um, from from this conversation. Our listeners yeah. may not know what we mean when we're talking no. about relational activism. So, no. what is it? Can you can you explain how you understand relational activism? Yeah, well, I mean, it, one of the things that always strikes me is that it can mean different things to different people. And um, we certainly, and I would, certainly wouldn't want to, um, you know, carve uh, a dictionary definition in a tablet of stone. Um, originally, we were talking about, you know, I've, I've mentioned interest and that inclination towards activism and also the restorative work, the relational work that really interests me over a period of time in social work, be that family good confidence or advocacy or other strength-based, other strength-based and models and ways of working. And it and it felt a natural thing to put those, to put those two words together. And one day we did and we started um, talking about it, but we did do our research as well. And there was some environmental that activist academics by Sean and Kennedy, and uh, they wrote a paper about relation activism. And it was to, they the, the way they turned it was to call attention to the way the relationship building work contributes to conventional activism. So it, it wasn't necessarily about saying, yeah, yeah, um, banner waving activism, you're marching in the streets. And um, it's not valid in any way, but it's saying, that the work that we can do in the everyday and the actions we can take, the relationships that we build, the trust that we generate with people and with community, and that's activism, that can be activism as well. And when you're working in a local authority context and you're a council officer and you're trying to do those things, trying to work with people, uh, you're trying to work, bridge the gap between the council and the community, that really fitted for us and it really filled in the blanks as far as what we were trying to do. You know, we were trying to be hopeful and we believed that we could achieve positive change um, in the world around us. Um, and we've got this little strap line about, you know, relational activism achieving positive change in the world um, or the world that we can touch. And uh, that really did um, uh, seem to make sense because you're up against these big um, structural forces. There's an, a narrative about a system almost as an abstract thing and how the system can prevent us um, from taking action. And so to start to articulate something which isn't an overall sort of grand narrative, uh, but to start to um, articulate something um, that was positive. I mean, was about action in the everyday. That really, really worked for us and has worked for us over over a period of time. Yeah, I really like the idea about activism within the everyday. Yes, and yes. you talked about hope and belief as well. You know, belief that you could make changes, that this work would enable changes to 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 come about for people communities i guess having that belief holding that belief is really key to this um and yes. 
I wonder, you know, it's it's really challenging work that social workers do in the everyday. Yeah. Yes. There's there's a lot of barriers that that can be around. Um so how how important is holding that belief that change and activism is possible for this Yeah, world? Re that's really that's really important and and part of uh, maintaining that and holding on to that hope is is um sharing the stories also connecting with other relation activists and you know relational activism for me is is people and i mentioned earlier how you know if it's anything and this sounds a bit grandiose but as a sort of participatory platform and um, where you know somebody will get in touch and it, it might be somebody in camden that says you know i just got this brilliant thing the other day i just you know got a bike um, for a young US um, asylum seeker that's just come into Canada and just come into the, to the borough and I've been working with him now. I've, um, I've got my bike, he's interested in cycling and I want to tell that story. Um, or, uh, you know, the person outside Camden that gets in touch and says, you know, um, this is this this really fits with um, my beliefs about, about people um, so uh, it it's uh, and one of the parent activists who really informed out thinking early on about this was Carissa Stevens. I mentioned the coffee morning. So you've got this group of parents that's coming regularly once a month this coffee morning, and one of those was Carissa Stevens, and uh, she's there's a um, a film on our website. If you look up relation activism on Google, you find our website, uh, which tells her story. But and her story is one way as she had two children. That were um, taken into care and then adopted um, more than ten years ago in when she was living in Camden, and uh, and fast forward a period of time and Clarissa felt really passionately about trying to make a difference in the system, and she started saying, "Look, I'm creative. I want to make a change. I want to make a difference in the way that I." And build relationships across the system and use my lived experience and ally lived experience with the learned experience and have conversations with the professionals in the system to make a difference and so she was one of those early on who really got that idea that if we um, move together with find allies and find those people and that are interested in making a difference and then we can make change together and I mentioned uh, Jeremy Brown earlier, the, the community organizer in America, and she's got this and brilliant manifesto around um, moving at the speed of trust and building critical connections rather than aiming for critical mass. And, you know, finding those people around you that can support you in your work. Um, and that might be your manager or it might be the business support or the team clerk in your office, or it might be somebody in the community um, that you can learn from so that you can support the next person and better. So uh, yeah, about finding fi finding the people that can help you in the work, that's a really important part of it, yeah. Moving at the speed of trust, it's very different, isn't it, to a lot of the, the work that can happen in local authorities, you know, focusing on outcomes and doing things within certain timescales. But, 
you know, it feels to me that that is important. Whatever whatever type of work we're doing, be it with an individual, a family, you know, or looking wider groups of people, that moving at the speed of trust is really essential to be able to work in a, a truly relational way. Yeah, it is. And I mean, you've done some brilliant production work, I mean, in Somerset. And so you know this, that it, I think with, there is necessarily a, a tension there. And when you've got a local authority, we've got all got our project lines and things that we want to make progress on. And I think that those methods and that language around them, um, progress outcomes, task and finish groups. Um, it, it's like, it's hard for me to say <laughs> you can sort of put that to one side completely, but I think there are situations and perhaps one of those is when we're working with groups of people with experience, there are times where it is necessary um, to really take that ethos to heart, to move at the speed of trust and to let projects unfold one step at a time mm. and to see and to see where where they to see where they take us to let things emerge rather than as the professional um, anticipating the outcome or anticipating the end goal i think if we're really co-creating with others um, we need to hold a space which is genuinely generative and where something that's beyond our imagination as an individual professional can emerge. I mean, that's the point of sort of co-production or co-creation in the first place, isn't it? But we can totally. get on so that we can create something which is unique and is special and it is um and it's a product of a group of, of people that formed that team or that coalition around the around the work. I mean, in the first place, the the, the Quakers um have a say. So everybody has a piece of the truth. Mm. I think you need to go into those co-production, co-creation processes um, with with that kind of philosophy in mind. Yeah. I really like that. I haven't heard that before, um, Tim. And I guess going going into co-design and and all the work that we do with with people. Yes. With an attitude of not knowing, not knowing quite where it's going to take us to. So there is that opportunity for for reimagining. You know, if we've got our predefined sort of framework within our minds, that's what we recreate, isn't it? I agree. I think that's a lovely word, um, reimagining. And uh, yeah, I think not, not knowing is a type of knowledge in itself, isn't it? Um, and um, I, th I feel like that about strength-based working because, you know, I think there's a kind of strength-based, which is me as the professional, I'm changing my language and moving from a deficit model or a de deficit language towards a strength-based language and recognising certain um, values or skills or abilities on that somebody I'm working with has. And that I think that's a positive thing and that is a that is a gear change. But I think strength based in the sense of production is going beyond that. And 
allowing, not allowing the person, but allowing yourself, having the vulnerability as a professional to learn from the other person and come to a shared idea of what that person's strengths or capacities or, or and that person's hopes and dreams are. And I think that's an, I think that's another an, another level on the strength of this. You've just reminded me of a question that was raised at um, it was a recent event that uh, that I went to. You may have seen it on Twitter. In fact, I think you probably did, Tim. Uh, <laughs> there, there was a question that was uh, that was posed which was um, something, I'm not going to paraphrase, um, but um, something along the lines of, if we were to work in a truly um, uh, co-productive way, what would adult social care look like? Oh, yeah. Probably, you know, that's, that's, I just thought that's yeah. the best question that, really that I've heard for quite a long time. Um, it, it's, yeah, it, it, it links into that reimagining yeah, it, it does, and you know, that's a big question. And the 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 fact that it's such significant paradigm shift, and is um, it hits home to me when I hear the question because it's really quite a, a sharply um, powerful question, isn't it? When you hear it, when you hear it said, and I haven't got an answer overall to that question, but I have a, a little story that perhaps answers it in a, in after a fashion. And this is a, a social worker who, who you met when we came to uh, Somerset, when we joined an online call in Somerset, Martin Hampton. Oh, yes. And some work that he did recently. So the, the Camden Adult Social Care and Practice Model is called What Matters. And it starts from that notion that it's you should rather than asking um, what's wrong or even asking somebody what they need I mean that would be an appropriate question sometimes of course but an even more um resonant question important question is what matters to ask somebody what matters to them and Martin started working with doing an assessment for a woman called Lindiwe who'd come to London from South Africa in the 1960s and she'd been involved in this apartheid struggle in South Africa. In fact, her husband had been killed by police in, in, in the apartheid police and because he, he left the house with the wrong jacket on without his ID card on him. And um, so Linda Iway had been involved in the struggle. She knew the Mandela uh, family and was an activist in South Africa. And she came to London, came to live in the borough of Camden in the 1960s. And at that time, she was she acted on the stage. Uh, there was a musical called uh, King Kong, which was had um, based on township um, music. And uh, so, fast forward to uh, 2022, and Martin's doing this assessment, and he's talking to her about you know the things that she needs. And where she's going to live, what her care package is, um, how about sorting out um, what's happening with her hearing uh, and the support that she's getting from her community and family. And he's also uh, starting with her and asking what matters. And what mattered to Lindue was, um, well, she had a tricky problem with hoarding and she'd lost this suitcase, a suitcase full of poems that she'd written over time 
many um, poems that she'd written in the 1960s. And uh, so um, um, she was wanted to, to sort out these poems and she wanted to have a conversation with her family, her community, about how she was going to go on in the coming weeks and months. So uh, Martin, being the intrepid, wonderful social worker he is, <laughs> he's also done a lot of family good conferences over time. So he's been, um, we've been uh, pioneering um, family good conferencing for adults in Camden. And Martin's been one of those social workers that's referred time and time again. And so this is a community conversation with the adult and the community around them. It's quite an unusual, isn't it? Yeah. And it has been for yes. family group conferences to be used in adult services. So this yes. might be new for some of our listeners hearing yeah. used in adult services. Yeah, that's that's right. And um, yeah, it's yeah. When I came to Wolf, we'll, we'll, I'll give you the um, the conclusion to the Lindiway story. But to to fill in that context about the Fangu conference, um, Fangu conferences something that was developed in New Zealand, actually, with Maori uh, families. And it was very much um, a co-production in between Maori families and the child protection services in New Zealand and was enacted in law. So that Maori communities were saying, look, there's a disproportionate number of Maori children going into care. We think we've got a significant resource in the community that's not being utilised. We've got these extended networks of support. Um, they're not being considered by the um, child protection services in New Zealand. And so um, they developed this model called family conferencing, which spread around the world. And it's a simple thing, really. It's about having a facilitator, a community organiser, um, who's usually referred or instructed by the social worker, who acts as a bridge and a go-between between the um, social services and the family and organises a meeting where the professionals can come and say what they're worried about. But crucially, the community network can have time in the meeting to respond and make their own plan of how they're going to um, come up with solutions and address these worries that professionals have. Um, so it's a really great thing. And when I came to Camden you know, 10 years ago, um, we started doing more and more family conferences in children as we ramped it up from you know, sort of 50 that we were doing at the time up to we do more than 300 now. And the numbers of children in, um, in care in, in Camden during that time and fell by um, 50%. And that there were other factors as well that played into that, but it was a really big thing to be able to offer that ability for um, families to have that dialogue with professionals and respond by their own plans and put their hand up to be long-term care or medium-term care for children and uh, we really saw an opportunity to use that and develop that way of working and um, in adult social care and we've got some lovely examples and um, Lindiwe is one uh, but also there was a brilliant family conference we did with a um, unknown heritage woman called Alice and it's a film that you can watch which is online if you look up Alice family conference We'll have to put some links in the video too, yeah, so that people great. can go and access the <laughs> videos and other resources you've mentioned. Yeah, but and so this was so this was the this was the method, the model we had at our fingertips, um, and that uh, Lindiwe had an option to utilise if she wanted, and uh, so and the way that Martin did that was he didn't 
organise a meeting in the social work office. Um, he talked to the Shaftesbury Theatre, which was the stage in Covent Garden that Lindy Way had acted on in the 1960s. And he persuaded the theatre to um, allow us to use that space to hold um, Lindy Way's community meeting. And so you have a situation where um, I think it, I can't. I think it might, it might have been a sort of wet Tuesday afternoon. I can't remember the exact day of the week, but <laughs> on that day they had a performance in the evening uh, on the stage, but they didn't have a matinee that day. And so um, Lindy Way came uh, with her members of her family, also her church community. So there might have been fifteen or twenty people there. And the social worker and the OT and the um, rep from the care agency as well. And they came and had a discussion. And we had each of those people, including the OT and the social worker, read out one of her poems. And they had this poetry reading, which that was what mattered to her. So powerful. And um, they sang um, Zulu um, uh, songs as well. Um, and... They also got around to the, to the discussions about uh, high back chair and our hearing and um, package as well. And what they'd shown to me was that that was the a full extension of the potential um, of of that model. You know, you've got this model which is saying, okay, we can make decisions differently. We can make decisions in the community. We can devolve decision making to family, to community, to adults. And Martin, as the social worker, and, and and he gets really gets the props on this, but he utilised that to to its its full extent by curating a, a meeting an occasion which was um, so culturally intelligent for Lindy Way, which had such resonant meaning for her, where she could talk about not just what she needed but, but what matters. And so it was a lovely, a lovely moment. Yes, yeah. It really feels like a total reimagining of what social care and working together can be like. And I've, I've, uh, I've, I've had the privilege of uh, hearing some of Linda Way's poetry mm-hmm. uh, sessions that uh, that Tim has done before. I, I do wonder whether um, Linda Way might give us permission to to put some links to her poetry in the show notes. That's a brilliant idea. Yes. Yeah. It's really, really powerful. It would be fantastic for our listeners to be able to to read some of her poetry and, you know, her story for the 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 meeting that Martin put together, Family Group Conference, it's so, so powerful. Really powerful. So so powerful. And I know and it's so and this is really about Martin as the as a relational activist about taking action in the everyday and yeah, his action in that what was what did martin do he found the theater <laughs> and, asked, <laughs> and, asked, and, and asked them and they did it you know so brilliant it's a nice example brilliant. i know it, it's quite it, it, it's quite an easy you know it's quite a sort of perfect example in in a way and i know there are many complex and um, problems and challenges out there but the thing that i've like about it is he was using what he had, uh, and um, and, um, and 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 taking and taking action. Yeah, so it's a lovely one. Yeah, I'm going to play devil's advocate for a moment, Tim. 
Yeah, please. Yeah. There may be social workers, social work students that are listening now. And I think, how could I be that creative within the constraints of my role? Because there is always, isn't there, a tension between the time available for working directly with people and, you know, all the other um, aspects of, of their roles that are, that are really crucial so how do you know how how is it possible to work in that way and is there any advice that you would give to to our listeners um who who are thinking yeah that is what i really want to do i want to work really creatively with people to reimagine and bring bring that reimagining to life in the practice yes well, i think on the at the level of our organizations so if you're working in a local authority and within a health trust and there will be practice model likely and there will be some people around that will be doing interesting work no doubt participatory work i think most of practice models actually if we look at the um, international definition of social work or if we look at the our um, social work values and standards, there is there is the potential to be radical there. You know, it it, it is there, and some contexts and some organisations are more difficult than others. And if we say that we think relationships are are all really important and our working relation is important, then we do need to acknowledge that sometimes relationships, hierarchies, and difficulties can block off. And potential creative practice and work, mm-hmm. but I think you know, as as social workers, I mean, it's still there in um, in in the profession, um, in 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 social work, in the can be ethos and background of social workers to be um, agile and adjust and look for opportunities um, to make a difference, to build a relationship. Um, to another one from the community organizing is you know there's a conversation in the room that only these two people at this moment can have and find it and so every every individual connection or helping relationship that you have this potential to do it and differently there's a unique context in every relationship and and in every and in every meeting um, as well and another um uh, really interesting uh, sh- shift, but in some ways another sort of revolutionary sh- or evolutionary shift um, in adult social care is we started um, having a artist in residence uh, come and use and use visual methods, use photography, and accompany social workers on visits, and um. Partly that came and again using Martin Hampton as as an example. And I'm using Mar- Martin Hampton and giving him due credit, but I know there are Martin Hamptons um, in uh, every um, local authority and organisation up, 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 up and down the country or around the UK. I'm sure they are. I believe in that. I'm sure there are. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. And, and, and those of you listening to this will have people in mind and, and you know, and even... Um, I think there's, it's not just about those special individuals. It's about 
you know, us sort of learning collectively and learning from those as well. And so, you know, Martin does do things that are unusual, you know, like booking the theatre, but then that learns me to then say to other people that are doing family conferences, wow, look at this example. And then a couple of months later, we had this amazing family conference with a smiley uh, uh, family where they brought their own food in a community centre here in Camden. That was directly influenced from Martin. So I think those individuals can have an influence. And But one thing that he did was he, with um, adults' permission, he, he, he took photos of people and started using photography in his um in his assessments um, and using photography in um for funding panels and conversations with senior managers about what people needed and i just think that is really interesting because and i speak um you know a lot of my work i do in children's but we have got this i've got this sort of role across into adults with adults for good conferencing but i feel like across the piece in social work so much of our, uh, you know, we, we we live the 3D reality of being with people, obviously, in in-person visits and all of that, yes. which is really important. And But as far as the, the recording and the outcomes um, from the work, it's very much the written word, isn't it? Yeah. And there's an argument made that we focus too much um, on that. And so to bring in, in the visual, I think is a really um, quite a radical step. And we had uh, Ofsted inspectors were in Camden last week on the children's side. Okay. And the artist in residence, who's called Trevor Appleson, uh, came, brought in and brought in um, some of his photography and we put them up um, around uh, the office. And there was this lovely um, car cross with um, inspectors there to inspect and look at the system quite appropriately uh, while they, um, the real Camden citizens um, were being reflected and represented um, on the walls of the office. So um, that was a nice, a nice oh. moment. Um, and I think, um, you know, sometimes the relational act this work or the, um, we make progress by small changes or developing our practice. Um, you can make a difference and give people hope in moments as well. So that special event that you had, the whole service meeting you had where the Susan came and spoke, um, or the co-production session that he had with people from the community that provided some good feedback. And so those those moments and events um, can also give us give us hope as well as well as the long longer term projects. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Tim. And uh, I think the the energy that is there in those moments where people are coming together. You know, for me, that that is a way of continually, I guess, replenishing that hope for me, and that that um, that that sort of fire to keep on going. You know, yeah. Tim, I know we could talk for an awful long time, and uh, when we start having conversations, as our listeners are probably um, appreciating now, they tend to be quite organic conversations. I guess a little bit like, um, you know coming in not knowing and then we we yeah. see where they where, where the conversation goes to um we'll have to get you back tim to talk another time because there is so much that we could we could talk about um but i just wonder if you were to give your your younger social work self when you'd stepped out of the estate agent's um sort of office um <laughs> 
what advice or words of wisdom might you give to your younger social work self from the position that you're in now and all of that experience you've got? Well, I mean, I've been thinking quite a lot about vulnerability recently and professional vulnerability. And I think that, um, you know, how when you're starting out or you when when you when you're trying to gather experience and whatever activity and um, you're trying to demonstrate competence and um so and i understand that um i think by the same time this thing which is really talking about organic there's this lovely organic thing that's come out about not knowing this conversation isn't there Yes. And I think that, I think, is sometimes as a professional, if you leave open the space, um, if you um, be prepared to, to not know, to be vulnerable, um, and that's when we, we can learn from, from others. And, and Fred Moten, who's a brilliant writer, um, says, we don't have to elaborate ourselves to connect. In fact, it often gets in the way. And and I think there are some there is a tendency to want to um, accelerate our professionalism mm. because there's a sense that you know that's we want to justify our presence and our we also want to try to maximise our potential uh, to help people um, but yeah being being vulnerable sometimes and and letting people in. I think um, is um, is important. Yeah, really interesting, isn't it? And I, I sort of make, it's making me reflect back actually to to when I first started out as a social worker and uh, really thought about you know I need to I need to use terminology. You know, I, I most of my work has been in mental health. You know, and I yeah. found myself adopting lots of medical and psychological language. And I think over time, there has been an undoing of that, letting go of that, um, because it does get in the way with um, of, of connecting and with building those relationships. Yeah, and I, and I, I think um, and that, that comes with confidence, doesn't it? And there's a sort of, there is a confidence in um, being able to leave some of that official armour to one side. Um, so I think it might be a big ask of myself to go back and, um, you know, and um, and to do that. Um, I had a nice reunion recently with my first practice teacher, and it was in a placement in adults, okay. and uh, and it was a tricky placement for me actually because it was an adults contact and assessment team, and they were cutting funding at the time and. There was a narrative about promoting independence. Okay. Yes. And I was going out and doing assessments supported by my practice supervisor. But um, you know, initial assessments. And oftentimes what I felt like the people in community wanted, like the Meals and Wheels, the bingo, and like the community sentiment. Yeah. Eventually <laughs> they didn't have to give them. And I, I was doing assessments and saying actually there isn't I've not got anything to give you because those services have changed. I think there was, some, there was something important there about the kinds of things that were available. Um, 
probably wouldn't have or, or they wouldn't have promoted the independence of that person. So I think there was a kind of there was that complexity that we've referenced a few times in 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 social work was there right from the start and for me. But uh, but um but yeah I um I saw so I sort of reconnected recently with my um early social work self and um had some sort of mess, shared some messages with my first successor I haven't spoken to for a while and we're gonna chat again. So it was nice actually. Yeah. Oh, you're making me think about my my very first practice uh, educator, practice assessor, actually, and uh, yeah, it's quite some time since uh, since we've connected. <laughs> well, yeah, that is something I really, really must try to do again. Well, yeah. I will commit to do actually because yeah. that's important. Yeah. Tim, it's been wonderful to have this organic conversation with you. Um, I hope it's been really interesting for, for our listeners and uh, I do hope that you'll come back again and uh, talk on the podcast. So thank you, Tim. Really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate the chance to have a conversation and it's always a good one with you. And if anybody's interested in making a look up relational activism, um, if you do, there's our website there and you can subscribe to us. And we'll get some links out on the show notes as well, Tim, so that uh, people can go straight to uh, the website and also any other resources that you'd like to uh, to signpost people to who are interested in, uh, in hearing a bit more. Magic. Well, thanks so much. Thank you, Tim. Thank you. And I'll also say another thank you to Sean, who is behind the scenes doing all of the producing, all of the editing for anything that uh, that uh, he needs to take out. Hopefully there's not too much editing from, uh, from today's. Um, so thank you, Sean. If you do like the podcast, please do subscribe to it and then you'll get patient when the next episode comes out. And please do share the podcast as well with with others, with colleagues, with people that you know are interested in social work. Um, because, you know, one of my passions is really about promoting a different narrative about social work. The narrative that is frequently out there within the media, you know, is can be very negative. So really being able to promote a very different narrative about about the work that social workers do, the difference that social workers make in the everyday, everyday, if that makes sense, is is really important. So thanks ever so much for listening. Apologies if you did hear my dog making noises in the background. She has come and sat on my lap, actually, for the remainder of the podcast, which is very, very welcome, given it's quite a chilly day here in Somerset. So thanks ever so much and look forward to seeing you next time.